From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today we feature readings of submissions and winners from the 2012 Writer's Talk Barnes & Noble The Ohio State University Bookstore Year-End Writing Competition. These were taped live at the Barnes & Noble Ohio State University Bookstore on December 4th, and that accounts for some of the sound effects that you'll hear in the background. We'll start off with a runner-up called Banana Pancakes by OSU student Diana Coleman, read by OSU student T.J. Armstrong. This is a poem called Banana Pancakes. December began with banana pancakes. Their house is vacant of furniture and sentimentality, as if they were saying they didn't plan on staying for too long. Missy and I sit at the table with quite a dilemma. There was no syrup, and without syrup, pancakes may as well cease to exist. Her brother sits on the back of the couch, his legs no longer dangling over the edge as they used to. I look out the window, where the snow falls patiently, looking so deceivingly soft and warm. There are no trees in this neighborhood, only a lone rock that just makes the scene seem even more unnatural. Missy and I escape her cookie-cutter house, carrying a pocket full of change and light hearts, even though I'm dreading the chilly journey. As always, her brother follows us with his long, drudging footsteps. Missy is irritated with him, as always, because he is her brother, and that is how siblings have to be. We step onto the forested path, and it is almost as if we've gone to a different world, The trees envelop us protectively, and a glittering walkway spreads out infinitely ahead. They bicker, tart retorts back and forth, Missy's cheeks flushing pink, her voice taking on that impassioned tone. I see that annoyed expression crossing his eyebrows as he keeps opening his lips to speak, but she interrupts him every time. And then I just can't take it. I start to giggle and it turns into a real bellowing laugh. They stop talking for a moment, smiles teasing their lips, as they wonder where this burst of insanity came from. Missy's eyes are a surreal blue, like there's electricity surging through her irises. Snowflakes sparkle across her eyelashes like fairy dust. His are darker, messier, a muddy pool. But they both have these looks that say, Who are you? And sometimes it seems that these sort of days must be kept pure and snowy white, protected from the tainted truths that inevitably lay ahead. That was Banana Pancakes by OSU student Diane Coleman, read by OSU student T.J. Armstrong. Now... We'll go to OSU graduate John D. Vasquez and his story, I'm Not So Jolly, read by OSU student Michael Lee. Next story is I'm Not So Jolly by John Vasquez. What do you want? This character won't tell us his name. Detector Javin Mora rolled his eyes and sighed. Although he appeared to be annoyed, he was actually delighted by the interruption. Three days before Christmas, and no murders or felonies worth spit have been committed. Maybe after family get-togethers, the blood will flow and there'll be something solid to do. 
He knew he should be grateful for the low crime rate, but Mora had been reading cold case reports and he was bored spitless. He shook his head. Since he was a senior detective of the squad, he felt obliged to exude a sense of world weariness. Well, actually, he felt like running to the interrogation room. He looked at Lonnie Ongler through half-closed eyes. What's this guy in for? He created a disturbance in front of the Tangent store. I think he was looking to panhandle and got into a fight with the Tangent employees, so we picked him up. So what? So he won't say who he is. We got his prints going through the system, but I thought you could squeeze him while that's going on. He rose and followed Angler. Mora was the city's top interrogator. In that little room, he practically became a therapist to all the scum that came through the station. He was their best friend for one hour, nodding with sympathy as they explained why they had to blow a hole in the man's skull, or other times he told them they were full of crap, and yellow as well. Then they bragged of their crimes. The interrogation room had been the center of a thousand little dramas, but today, this one sounded extremely trivial. This is trivial, said Mora. Angler pursed his ribs. Ooh, I'm sorry, Detective Mora, but we're all out of murder suspects. Hannibal is having lunch in the Bahamas, and Professor Moriarty is in Cancun. All we have today is one old guy who picks up spit. They stopped in front of the two-way mirror. An old man was sitting with his head slumped down. He must have sensed them watching, for he slowly lifted his head. His skin looked even paler under the fluorescent light. His hair was white, and he sported a long, unruly beard. His suit was red, with white trim. Is this a joke? Mrs. Claus doesn't think so, Angler laughed. Just breaks Santa like a cheap toy. Or a sprig of mistletoe. Mora entered the room alone. He inspected the suspect while the suspect inspected him. He wore a good suit with a thick belt and fluffy white fur along the wrists and collar, but he was old and worn. Beside him on the table was a red cap with a jingle bell at the top. The pale man glared at Mora. He spoiled a black eye and there was some blood beneath his nose. There was the noticeable smell of bourbon. How's it going? Not so good. In case you haven't noticed, I'm in jail. I'm Detective Mora. You want a cup of coffee? No. Cigarette? No. Tough time of year. <laughs> you don't know the half of it. Why don't you tell me about it? You have enough real problems, Detective. Right now, you're my problem. What's your name? Santa Claus. What is your name? Chris Kringle. Cut the crap and tell me what your name is. Santy freaking Claus. Mora sighed and sat down. Just as advertised. You had a few drinks, huh? Yeah, so what? I thought Santa didn't drink. You thought wrong. Don't you think this kind of behavior will disappoint the kids? Sometimes, Detective, I disappoint myself. We'll just have to wait in line. Tis the season to be jolly. Well, I wasn't feeling so jolly. I was feeling down and sorry for myself, so I knocked back a few bourbons that's not against the law. That's not what you're in here for, is it? Oh. Yeah, you're right. Are you afraid the old lady will find out? That's it, isn't it? Is that why you won't say your name? The old man just shrugged. Well, what is she gonna say when you don't show up tonight? Maybe she'll start thinking you got a honey on the side. 
Maybe she'll worry so much that she'll have a heart attack. You know, we aren't letting you out until we know who you are. This silence thing is really going to snowball on you, so what do you think? Santa shrugged. You got a job, Chris? Oh, I've got a job, all right. A big job. Listen, Santa. You aren't going to do that job, and you aren't going to see Mrs. Claus. You aren't even going to be outside for Christmas if you don't tell us who you are. This thing you were arrested for, it's nothing. This isn't Grand Theft Auto. It isn't Murder One. You might even skate away without bail money. But being stubborn and not telling us who you are means you're going to be a guest of county for a month, maybe two, before the trial comes up. If you think this arrest has complicated your life, staying inside is going to make it worse. You got something to hide? Why is it you won't tell us your name? I don't feel like it, detective. Mora leaned back in his chair. So, tell me about tonight. What was this assault all about? Holiday cheer. You're not much of a jolly fat man. Sometimes you get tired of a role as written. I didn't feel like being jolly. I felt like getting smashed, so I sat down at Max Ranch and had a drink. I didn't feel jolly, and I didn't feel like living up to people's expectations. This time of year is tense for me. A hundred thousand things could go wrong, and I'm lucky if I keep it under a hundred. You know when you're a kid and you have a big disappointment? As an adult, you can say things like, Oh, that's water under the bridge. In the large scheme of things, it wasn't so important. I have so much to be grateful for. You can say that. But when you are a child, having certain toys is, can be so vitally important. You imagine your happiness is tied up in possessing a new skateboard, an Elmo doll, or a Lego set, and when you don't get it, and when you could have gotten it but you didn't get it, well, it simply wounds you to your soul. So as an adult, you can say those high-minded things, but... When you think about it as if you were five years old again, the pain is still palpitating there. When I think about the screw-ups that I could have avoided, well, I get down and I become anti-jolly. <clears throat> Did I fall asleep here? Uh, what has this got to do with tangent? <sighs> so, I was talking with Mac or... Bill, I'm not sure what his real name is, and he was telling me how Tangent doesn't allow Salvation Army bell ringers in front of their store stores at Christmas time. Now, I was already pissy and pissed off, and this news soured me further. They are objecting to people giving up their pennies. Pennies! W what is their objection to a little kettle charity? Are they afraid people won't buy a candy bar at the register? Or maybe they're afraid if people are reminded of poverty in the world, they won't buy useless doodads. I don't know. But I was offended, so I went and I got some equipment. Today I told myself today it wasn't going to be some easy declaration by a CEO. Today they were going to have to physically throw me off the premises. They would have to get their hands dirty with my banishment. But I really wasn't expecting a major scuffle. Unfortunately, this store had Trevor the Nazi Great House, and he roughed me up pretty good. Mora was looking at the arresting officer's report. It says here you need him in the balls. Santa hissed and waved his hand. A black eye and a bloody nose for bruised testicles. I'd say it was a fair trade. And you're supposed to be Santa Claus. Santa isn't always jolly, Flatfoot. 
You might get depressed, too, thinking about all the toys you have to spread around and the day you work is usually cold as hell. The pressure is enormous, and on top of that, everyone expects you to be jolly. Well, I'm not jolly, I'm ticked off, and Mrs. Claus will probably rip me a new one, but it's not a crime to have a drink. No, but it is a crime to run these scams. Cut the cramp, Grandpa. You're fleecing people the easiest way you can just to get some scratch. Ho, 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 he laughed. I think I'll retire with the dollar fifty-seven I earned tonight. If you don't tell us who you are, you're not going anywhere. Nowhere. How jolly are you going to be on jail in jail on Christmas Day? Some of the anger drained away from the old man, and he eyed his interrogator calmly. Mora, eh? Philip Mora? No, I'm Detective Javin Mora. Make sure your lawyer knows it. You're not from around here, are you? So what? He rubbed his chin and twisted his mouth as he spent a moment trying to retrieve something from his memory. Maybe. 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 Madison. Mora from Madison, a Star Wars figure set in 1977. Moore's face paled. Then his eyes pinched together as they drilled into the old man. Is this some joke of anglers? No. There was a screw-up that year. You got a d guitar. Do you play the guitar, detective? I broke it over my father's head. <laughs> Maybe that's why you're dedicated to writing injustice. Moore's teeth ground together, and he could not prevent the intense anger that overtook him. So you made a lucky guess. Enjoy the prison food on Christmas, jackass! The next day, Moore shook the snow from his scarf as he approached his desk. Angler was standing there, and beside him was a UPS man. You waiting for me? Yeah, he's, he's got a package for you, and I was going to tell you the news. Moore signed for the package. What news? You know the guy you questioned yesterday? Santa Claus? What, the old kook? Turned out he wasn't Santa Claus at all. He was Houdini. The son of a gun disappeared right out of our jail. No bars were cut, no evidence, and his prince came back with nothing on him, so we'll probably never know. What is that, a Christmas gift? Mora pulled the outer wrapping away, and inside was a Christmas present wrapped in green paper with little Santas all over it. Aren't you going to open it? There. <laughs> That was I'm Not So Jolly by OSU graduate John D. Vasquez. It was read by Michael Lee, an OSU student. Now, for our third place winner, we have She Felt It by OSU graduate Mark Myers, read by OSU student Elizabeth Ehrlich. He was careful not to slice baby Jesus in half. But the rest of the card fell to the cold, hard blade of the paper cutter. Christmas cards always fascinated him. Stuck to the mirror or refrigerator, they begged for another life. And he gave it to the gingerbread men and wise men, hacking them into two and a half by six inch pieces, perfect bookmarks. The chop, chop, mindless physical work gave Arnell Klippner, the new librarian, a brief respite from the sixth and seventh graders. He mixed the bookmarks and dropped them into a shoebox on the checkout counter, where, apart, 
they were to become yet more. At times, he wondered if he really belonged at Rosemont Junior High at all. He had been raised in the country and missed the sounds of the farm, the rooster crowing early in the morning, the chug-chug of the milking machines, the tractor backfiring before it revved up, and the smells, alfalfa fermenting in the silo and manure rotting in the pasture. But his love of reading was greater than his love for the land. After chores, before school, he liked to go upstairs to his room and read. He wanted to pass on this lure of a good book to others, so he decided to become a librarian. He had not planned on playground and cafeteria duty, never mentioned in library school. As December approached, his patience was wearing thin. He lived by himself, and mornings were the hardest. He was used to getting up before dawn and going out to the barn in all kinds of weather. He was restless hanging around his apartment and headed out every morning, just as the streetlights turned off, to a different restaurant. He sat in a corner booth and, over coffee and toast, leafed through new books he had purchased for his library to make sure they were age-level appropriate. But he questioned his judgment sometimes. He had not realized what a difference there was between country and city kids. The students figured this out long before he did. When they learned that he had grown up on a farm, they started to laugh and make oink-oink sounds behind his back so he could hear it. Among themselves... They called him Cowbell Arnell, which he discovered after reading a note that someone dropped. He had been called Arnie back on the farm, and he wouldn't mind if the kids called him that. The one student who gave him unconditional respect was Audie Adams, a learning and socially challenged sixth grader, a special student who was mainstreamed into a regular class. He would stop by after school and help Arnell pick up the room and straighten the magazine rack. With his threadbare clothes, shaggy hair, and awkward gait, Audie didn't fit in with anyone except Mr. Klippner. When they were finished picking up, and it was just the two of them, Arnell bent the rules and allowed his helper to sit back in a chair and put his feet up on the table. In this position... Audie could spin tale after tale of his adventures on the Ohio River. One time, Uncle Max and me caught this snapping turtle so big we had to wire his jaws shut and then push him up two boards into a truck. Took us over an hour. He wished he felt as comfortable with the other students as he did with Audie. He tried to win over his reluctant charges by going on the morning TV announcements to announce a raffle. He set up a goldfish bowl on the library counter and students who wished to participate could write their name on a piece of paper and drop it in. The winner would get a free Harry Potter book, plus a candy bar. He even thought up a catchy way to promote the raffle. Have a Hershey with Harry over the holidays. Few bothered to respond. As December approached, he could hear locker doors slamming shut with more and more gusto. Kids were tossing books around like he used to toss hay bales, the don't-go-anywhere-without-a-pass rule was abandoned. Boys were swinging like monkeys from anything that resembled a tree, and the line outside the principal's office got longer each day. When he overheard a teacher in the lounge say, the best we can do is to stand by the door and keep him in the room, he wondered how he would get through that last day before winter break. His room, an open area that stretched between the 6th and the 7th grade halls, didn't even have doors. Then he thought of his bookmarks. 
he had noticed that many of the students liked to sort through them and fit them back together, like a puzzle. A craft project would keep them busy. They could make their own Christmas card and take it home. That would be the answer. On the day before Christmas, a light snow was falling, and the buzzing in the halls sounded like bees who'd been smoked. Audie's class was the first to arrive, and he had them put two large tables together. They were to find the bookmarks that fit together and paste them on construction paper, then make an envelope out of plain paper and scotch tape. Soon, there was a commotion. Audie's not doing it right, several of his classmates complained. None of his pieces fit. Here they go again, the librarian thought, picking on poor Audie. We can't complete our pictures. He's got the missing parts. Arnell looked down at the card Audie was making. Steeples were pointing downward and sleighs pointing up. Nothing did fit. But he noticed a pattern. Each of Audie's pieces had a texture to it. Bumps or depressions or a sandpaper-like surface. Look at Audie, they continued. He'll never get that messy thing in an envelope, and he's got dried glue all over the place, even in his hair. Before the situation got out of hand, Arnell quickly raised the tone of his voice to cover the grumbling and told them that, after finishing, they should write a few words on the back of their card, sign it, and take it home to someone special. Audie didn't write anything. Though students were wandering around all day collecting canned goods for the local pantry, passing out plates of cookies from home at class, delivering authorized notes between friends for a quarter, an honor society fundraiser, the halls, except for a few oink-oinks now and then, exhibited some semblance of order until the dismissal bell explosion. The exiting mayhem over, Audie brought his makeshift card back to the library, and Arnell put it in a large manila envelope to protect it from the falling snow. No pickup today, Audie. Hop in my car and I'll give you a ride home before it gets bad out there. He had often wondered about the boy's home life and talked once with Audie's homeroom teacher, who lamented, He lives with his mother, but she will never come into the school and always insists on talking by telephone only. As the windshield wipers beat back the flurries and slush, Arnell turned on the car radio, just as Burl Ives' Have a Holly Jolly Christmas was playing. That's one of my mom's favorites. She listens to him all day long, Audie said. The apartment complex, a warren of nondescript, weather-beaten front doors, was a couple miles from the school. As they entered Audie's front door, they heard, Who's that with you, Audie? I know you're with someone, his mother said. Arnell looked around the small, plain apartment with fading wallpaper, a couple of canaries singing in a cage, a grandfather clock gonging the hour, and a radio softly playing by the rocker. No TV in sight. It's okay, Mom. It's Mr. Klippner. He gave me a ride home, and look what I brought you. She lifted her hand, palm up, and Audie put his card into it. Now, Mr. Klippner, you set yourself down and get comfortable and stay for a while. Her fingers found Audie's card. Oh, my, she said. This must be glitter. This feels like a snowflake, and this must be cotton. From Santa's beard, I'll bet. And here's some felt, like my old hat. Her eyes looking straight ahead, unblinking. And what's this? Oh, it must be dried glue, my favorite. And she picked at it. 
Oh, Adi, this is the most beautiful card I've ever received. Several moments passed as she continued to trace. Adi tells me you're his favorite teacher. You teached him right. He's a big help to me. And he's a big help to me, too, Arnell said. Don't know what I'd do without him. She raised her right arm, and Adi slipped under it. Embracing her son with her right hand, she extended her left toward the librarian, and he grasped it. Sorry I can't stay long. Just wanted to stop by and wish you and Adi a Merry Christmas. As he turned to leave, she stared blankly in his direction, and hearing his retreating footsteps, called out, And Merry Christmas to you too, Mr. C. You are a nice man. On his way home, he stopped at the grocery store and picked up a dozen brown eggs. Don't even have to steal them from under a hen, he mused, and dropped some hash browns, shredded cheese, onion, and sausage bits into his cart. The next morning, after church bells roused him from a sound slumber, he went into his kitchen and scrambled the ingredients in a big skillet, a Bauernfrühstück, his mother used to call it, a farmer's breakfast from the old country. And it never tasted better. That was She Felt It by OSU graduate Mark Myers, read by Elizabeth Herlich. Now we'll go to the second place winner, which was Miriam Penzler by Craig S. Lovelace, read by Craig S. Lovelace. Miriam Penzler and her cranberry sauce. Mysteries exist in the absence of facts and shield us from the rigor of individual thinking. I never bought into the notion of the unexplained because in my book everything can be deciphered. There are no ghosts to spook us or a supreme being guiding our every step. There is only biology, logic, and reason. At least this is what I've been telling myself for most of my adult life. And my view works 100% of the time, except when it comes to Miriam Pensler, who walked into my life 32 Thanksgivings ago and took a permanent residence in my soul. She is the puzzle I cannot solve, and the sole example that lends credence to the phrase, everything happens for a reason. It was 1980 when Miriam showed up on the doorstep of my family's home in the small Ohio college town of Marietta. She is one of several staff employees and students stuck on campus over the holiday weekend who would be joining our family for dinner. As long as I can remember, my parents hosted the holiday meal that was always an eclectic affair for the people gathered and the food that was served. We ate a traditional turkey dinner with all the fixings more often than not, but sitting down to a plate of Indian chicken curry would not have been unusual. There was nothing that stood out about Miriam when we met. She was the first to arrive, and opening the front door, I saw standing on the stoop a petite woman wearing a yellow slicker to protect her from the light rain that was falling and holding a covered bowl. She offered a curt hello. Dad heard her voice and rushed forward taking the bowl and raincoat and leading her into the dining room. He introduced Miriam to my mom and me and said she worked in the history department as an administrative secretary. She said nothing, but did acknowledge us with a short nod of her head. Mom placed a bowl on the dinner table, and I asked what was in it. Miriam said it was cranberry sauce, whose recipe she and her husband concocted almost 40 years earlier. Having never tasted cranberry sauce, I was curious, and lifted the lid only to see a lumpish, reddish-gray glob. 
unappetizing in its appearance and smelling even worse. No thanks. More people arrived, and soon the aroma of Thanksgiving wafting through the house was reaching its crescendo. It was time to eat. The grumbling in my stomach signaled my anticipation, yet my eyes kept darting back to the flowered bowl, half expecting that mass of goo to rise up and envelop the rest of the gastronomical bounty. As dishes were passed round the table, the bowl of sauce paused only at the chair holding Miriam, who plopped a dollop onto her plate. Sensing the culinary faux pas that was evolving, Mom rose from her seat and went from person to person, serving the sauce to each. She raved about the bowl's design and asked Miriam if it was a family heirloom. The facial reactions from the others as they examined the sauce were not as inquisitive as my mom's probe about the bowl's history. Dr. Garland was a semi-frequent guest of our annual meal, and he wore, the, he wore the same look of doom on his face school children get when called to the principal's office. Kelly Chicolo, who wanted to be a geologist, attempted a preemptive strike by mixing the sauce in with her mashed potatoes. I pushed my portion to the edge of the plate and used the yams as a buffer between the sauce and the rest of the food. My dad and others shared my strategy, but our defense tactics were sabotaged when Mom raised a forkful into her mouth and swallowed. Of course, my mother would also consume nails if it meant being polite. However, everyone followed her lead and civility was saved. It was strange observing Miriam throughout this mini-drama. She ate the sauce without the slightest expression on her face or recognition that her dinner companions were repulsed. Although her bodies were all seated at the same table, Miriam's eyes were far away looking for something or someone somewhere else. She joined us again the next year and brought along the cranberry sauce in the flowered bowl. It was just as bad, and again she seemed off in another world while eating it. A similar thing occurred the next year, and the year after that, and the years after that. I tried to articulate this oddness to my parents after the second Thanksgiving, but as a boy of ten, my oration skills were relegated to referring to her as one weird person. Miriam's strangeness, never, Miriam's strangeness never abated in this area, but my curiosity took a backseat to other facets of her personality. We learned that she loved to play the cello, which she did several times, enjoyed growing daffodils, liked taking her morning cup of coffee outside, and thought people could learn patience and perseverance by watching a spider weave its web. They are magnificent creatures and never get deterred, she would say about the arachnids. Doesn't matter if there's a hurricane, rainstorms, or predators, they are ferociously persistent, and they find a way to rebuild their world, their lives. Still, the older I got, the more vexing the mystery about the sauce became. I know everyone has secrets and episodes in their lives that they, that they choose not to reveal, most of the time, that information is either painful or shameful because people tend to share the things that make them happy. What could be so bad about cranberry sauce? The thought festered in my mind, and by the time Thanksgiving 1989 rolled around, I was fixated on the idea that Miriam owed me, us, an explanation about the sauce. I decided to ask. In the days leading up to Thanksgiving, I imagined a million scenarios about what could happen once the question was out there. None of them included a positive outcome, 
and each had some variation of this tiny elderly woman racing out of the house in tears and grasping onto that flowered bowl, never to be heard again, with me in hell condemned to eating the cranberry sauce. So after the sauce made its way around the table and everybody started in on their gyros, Greek food being the theme, I voiced my inquiry. Her reaction was quite opposite of what I expected, and Miriam neither ranted nor raved. She just set her knife and fork down, pushed her plate away, and began to tell her story. Five weeks after she and her husband were married, the Nazis hauled their entire Polish village off to a concentration camp in the eastern part of the country. That was October 18, 1940, and Miriam was only 19 years old. They rode for three days in a cramped railroad boxcar to reach their destination. The camp's initial appearance was dismal, and it didn't take them long to learn how brutal life was within its borders. The couple had it much better than the less physically fit. She worked in the laundry area while Isaac toiled outside the camp each day as part of a crew that repaired the railroad tracks and roads. She said her husband thought it ironic he helped maintain the infrastructure that brought more people to this grim wasteland of, wasteland of human misery. From the moment they stepped off the trains and entered the camp, the pair was apart. Their contact was relegated to stealing glances as she watched him from a laundry room window as he and others marched out of camp at dawn and back in at dusk. She could always tell which one was Isaac by the way he'd take off his cap and run his hand through his hair. It was a mannerism that had first attracted her to him. Autumn passed into spring, then into, excuse me, autumn passed into winter, then into spring, then into summer, until it was fall again. On the couple's first anniversary, she was especially sad. <clears throat> it seemed like an eternity since, the, uh, since she last felt the warmth of his lips or the reassuring caress of his hands. So many, died, had, so many had died around her, and those still breathing survived any way they could. She felt ashamed for the action she took to stay alive and prayed Isaac would understand. To make the day even more depressing and downright frightening, she did not see him on his way back into the camp. Twilight painted the sky a beautiful purplish backdrop, and she wondered at the queer paradox it presented against the beastly environment they lived in. It was a momentary reflection dashed by the bile creeping through her throat, not knowing if Isaac was dead or alive. She was leaning toward the ladder when a knock at the laundry room's rear entrance jolted her back to reality. Miriam opened the door slowly, but nobody was there. As she started to close it, she heard a voice coming from behind a nearby rain barrel asking if the wildflowers were in bloom. Her heart soared because wildflower was what Isaac had called her since they were kids. Isaac darted into the laundry room, she shut the door and turned out the light. Instead of embracing, as one might suspect them to do, the pair stood face to face in the dark, unsure, as if in a dream, if the other person was real. Each looked different, and the laundry room failed to resemble any way the hoopah under which the two were married. This awkward moment evaporated swiftly, and the couple clutched each other tightly. Time and circumstance made them speak quickly about all that happened. 
neither had expected to ever hold the other again, and she relayed her she relayed her earlier fears when she did not see him return that evening. Isaac grinned and reached into his pocket, pulling out a tin cup, a bit of flour, some pieces of an apple, an orange peel, and two handfuls of cranberries. He said he could not let their anniversary pass without a celebration and got the idea earlier in the morning when he stumbled upon a cranberry patch where they were working. Thinking cranberries wouldn't make much of a meal, he feigned a sprained ankle and was sent back to camp two hours early. He broke into the kitchen of the officer's dining hall and took what was in sight. Isaac crushed the berries in his hand, letting the juice run into the cup. He added the apple pieces, orange peel, and flour, which gave the mixture some consistency. The concoction set while they talked about their dreams and the simple routine motions of daily living. She longed for how he smelled after a bath, and he missed the jig she would dance whenever she was happy. Their reunion lasted less than ten minutes, but it seemed much longer. They kissed and wished each other a happy anniversary and ate the mixture. It was by far the most distasteful food I had ever eaten. I did not like it then, and I dislike it to this day, Miriam said, which caused all of us around the table, dinner table to burst out laughing. But Miriam said, as rotten a taste as it was, the couple promised to make their special sauce each year on their anniversary to help them celebrate the joy of life by remembering the bitterness it can deliver. She altered the promise slightly by making the cranberry sauce on Thanksgiving because she liked the American's idea of celebrating the closeness of family. When she finished her tale, my mother was in tears, as was Miriam, who told us that this was the first time she ever talked about her time in the camp. I felt like a slug for prying into her life. Sensing my consternation, Miriam took my hand and told me never to fear asking a question, but to make sure and learn something from the reply. Little did I know that that would be the last time I would see her. She died the following June from a heart attack. We never did learn what happened to Isaac and whether he made it out of the camp alive. All we knew for sure was that she immigrated to America after the war and found her way to our Thanksgiving table with the cranberry sauce. It has been a long time since I last thought about her in earnest, but standing in the kitchen almost 20 years after her death, I smile while preparing Thanksgiving dinner for my family. My daughter looks at me as if I'm crazy and asks why I'm crushing cranberries in my hand. That was our second place winner for the Writer's Talk Barnes & Noble, the Ohio State University Bookstore year-end writing competition. It was Miriam Pensler by Craig S. Lovelace, as read by the author. And the first place winner was A Christmas for the Birds by OSU graduate Judith Rogers, read by OSU actor Jill Somerville. I can still hear my father's voice booming down the aisle of the old century store, startling other shoppers and making me wish I were anywhere but there with them. I have to borrow money for food, and you're buying birdseed. My dad swore, picked up the three-pound bag, and flung it from the cart. My mother firmly replaced it, 
not so much an act of defiance as resolved that it belonged there with the roast noodles and other staples she had chosen. Normally, Dad was a generous man. Birdseed was, well, birdseed. For a week, Dad and Mom had fed and sheltered a family of six with seven pets whose car was demolished by a drunk driver in the middle of the night in front of our house. He had gone shirtless from his bed to rescue the two adults, four children, three cats, a Great Dane, bird, rat, and snake, while the ruptured gas tank leaked its deadly fluid under the totaled car. I had seen him often give without hesitation of his time and resources to someone in need. But Dad was a pessimist. He worked as a policeman, fireman, and rescuer at U.S. Steel's open hearth in Youngstown and in the rolling mill, once the largest in the world at the end of our street. His job was dangerous, ever-changing, and low-paying, as little education at the time was required. He believed evil triumphed more often than not over good. An auto accident had forever changed his face when he was 19 years old and left him limping from a shattered ankle. The depression killed his useful dreams. He tried to be decent, but, well, frankly, he felt he was a rare exception. Babies starved. The worst generally could and did happen. He knew. He'd seen it. But tears would run down his face into the meatloaf on his plate as he described the day's events, often involving heat stroke, heart attacks, accidents, and attempts at theft through the main gate that he stopped, sometimes with little thanks when the would-be thief was a supervisor or a big boss. He lost track of how many friends died in the meat wagon, as they called the ambulance. He drank before work, after work, and at home. When he was laid off, he reduced what he ate as he felt he didn't deserve the food. His 6-1 frame was down to 129 pounds that Christmas, and we'd only stopped shadowing him so we'd never be alone after all his life insurance had lapsed. The only luck he felt he'd ever had was meeting Mom at the age of 35 and becoming a father for the first and only time at 36. Now his frustration became fury. With 15 years of seniority at U.S. Steel, he had bought an old house and new car. Then he'd been laid off. One year stretched into two. He'd used savings, drove a school bus, and we all cleaned at the church. Mom took an ironing and altered others' clothes. I worked after school and on weekends, at first without a work permit, and then, when I turned 15, with one. In April of my junior year, Mom had found an indentation on her breast. And days later, a radical mastectomy was performed. There was no insurance and nowhere to turn. Her doctor was an intern, and the massive hospital bill was added to the pile of debt that seemed to grow no matter what we did. Dad was proud, so other than some discreet borrowing with promises to pay when he could, no one knew our increasingly desperate plight. After all, weren't we living in a nice stucco mill house on a quiet tree-lined street? Externally, nothing had changed. But as Christmas approached that fourth year, my senior year of high school, the freezer for the first time was empty, the bank threatening foreclosure, and the world was oblivious to our situation. Dad's pride was all he had left. Grimly, he had gone to friends for $5 here, $10 there, or borrowed $20 worth of Christmas food on the table. In January, there would be a meeting at our bank. The car loan had been added to the mortgage, and we were months in arrear. Everything would go at once. The battle of wills in the grocery store ended with the birdseed staying in the cart. Mom included its cost in the borrowed $20 she was using to shop at the grocery store. My mom was an optimist. 
Every year she tried to celebrate at least a piece of Norwegian Christmas, lighting the Advent wreath each Sunday the four weeks before Christmas, baking, sending canned goods to the church for distribution to the poor, and especially in observing Christmas Day itself. On Christmas Eve, we would open presents and go to the midnight candlelight service at our church. Then, Christmas morning, Dad and I rose early without eating and left in the Plymouth Suburban Station Wagon, which we had filled the night before with carrots, suet, celery, straw, and other edibles. We would find an unspoiled spot near our home in McDonald, Ohio, shovel the snow if necessary, and put out a Christmas feast for the wild things. Once we were rewarded with deer dropping by, Usually we saw only rabbits, birds, and an occasional possum or squirrel. After watching a while, Dad and I would return home, shovel snow in the vacant lot beside our house, spread bird seed, and go inside. The watchbird on the telephone wire would notice and disappear, reappearing with a flock of winter birds moments later. All of them were hungry for their holiday breakfast. Mom fed them all winter, and they knew they could count on her for their provision. This task completed, we would sit down for our breakfast of grit, a Norwegian warm vanilla pudding with cinnamon, French toast, bacon, juice, and hot chocolate, the three of us making an unbroken circle late on Christmas morning. Our feathered friends must have their Christmas breakfast. They're dependent on us. Mum broke the tense silence in the car on the way home from the grocery store. We can't let them down. I didn't know what to think about our economic situation. I knew we hadn't even been able to pay interest on the house for several months, but I couldn't believe that we'd lose it or that we'd starve. I certainly had no idea what would become of my dream of attending college in the fall, which my mother had been encouraging for so long. That seemed foolish now. Without saying another word, Dad took one grocery bag, I took the other. Mom held the door as we heard Queenie, our old black spaniel, dance welcome on the top step. Dad took two steps up in the darkness, stumbled, and almost fell. Carefully, he tried again until after what seemed for a long time, he reached for the kitchen light. Use the key in the garage. Sorry we missed you. The note was signed Eleanor and Marv, my uncle and aunt. The steps were lined with bags of sugar, potatoes, flour, and the refrigerator were butter, hamburger, and fresh brown eggs. Though we had occasionally picked summer vegetables on their farm, never before had they ever brought food to our home. And in such quantity. Mom put away the groceries we had bought and began making hamburger patties for the freezer. Dad took the potatoes to the root cellar, and he put away the heavy bags of flour and sugar. The next day, the day before Christmas, there was a loud knocking at the front door. Queenie ran in circles, barking, ready to protect us if necessary. Are you Roy E. Stevenson? An unfamiliar face asked. Yes, said Dad reluctantly expecting a bill collector. Merry Christmas from U.S. Steel! Two boxes appeared, one filled with a huge Christmas turkey, the other with a Christmas ham, and both contained fresh vegetables, nuts, fruits, even chocolates. They were like treasure chests. Mum filled the refrigerator with perishables, but there was so plenty of everything left. Dad started to smile. Let's go visiting, he said excitedly, naming some friends who had ten mouths to feed and little work as well. We packed a box of perishable goodies and spent the evening laughing and playing cards with good friends. At 10 p.m., we returned home to prepare for church. This time, the note was on the back door. Glad and sorry we missed you, it proclaimed. It was signed Ray, the president of the youth group I belonged to at our church. 
I saw the boxes of canned goods and knew what he was thinking. After all the years of giving canned goods to the poor, might we not be embarrassed to receive them? When Mom and I returned from church, we went to bed exhausted. But in the night, I awoke, thinking of the food and chocolate downstairs, and decided to get myself an early treat. The house was dark. The hall light upstairs illuminated the steps and shadows. As I crossed the living room, I heard noises in the kitchen. They weren't frightening sounds, but I felt like the intruder. From behind the living room arch, I could see my father, first in the light of the refrigerator, then the street light, going from refrigerator to cupboard to table to freezer, and back again. It struck me that those who had given to us this year had never done so before, and they were not asked to. Even more amazing, there was no duplication. Canned goods, seasonal food, perishables, staples, all were given in abundance from different sources. So much food that to ensure none of it went to waste, we could even share a part of it all with others. Dad would look in the freezer, then at the canned goods in the cupboard, then in the refrigerator at the turkey resting in the center. He seemed bewildered, like a child. Finally, he sat down in the dining room, rested his head in his hands, and sighed. When he raised his head, there were tears in his eyes. I'll never begrudge them darn birds again, he whispered. I crept back to bed. In all its promise, its beauty and simplicity, Christmas had come. I hope you enjoyed the submissions for the Writer's Talk Barnes & Noble, the Ohio State University Bookstore Year-End Writing Competition. My thanks go out to all of the people who submitted our 30-plus applications, and I hope to see you again at another contest that we'll have in the future. Remember, you can tune into Writer's Talk regularly on radio stations that are identified at our website at www.writerstalk.org. Until next time, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing. Keep writing.